Thank you, John, for that. And it's uh, so fun to see to the way that children teach us so much, isn't it? We learn a lot from them. Uh, lots happening around here, folks, if you haven't noticed. And so I just want to draw your attention to a few things. One would be that work day that's coming up. Uh, if you are able to clean, if you are able to lift things, if you're able to uh, just engage in, in any form of uh, helping us out with that, uh, this, is, this is our church home, and we have guests coming soon. And so uh, you, can, you can be sure on the second to, to get engaged with that. Um, maybe you're good in the kitchen. You know, if you're, if you're someone who likes to cook, uh, Charlotte Miller could certainly use your help also with helping prepare the food. For, for our Easter gathering and so uh, that breakfast time. So get a hold of her for that. Maybe you're really good with decorating. You love doing that. That's just something that's, that's uh, a strength of yours. Uh, let the church office know. Go ahead and, and, and uh, call us or, or uh, email to info at claytonvalleychurch.com because we're going to need help setting up decorations. There's just a lot to do in the days ahead. Why? Because Jesus is risen and because we're celebrating that together and because this community needs to know about that. And, uh, and we love every year the way in which God uses that time uh, to enable us to, to reach others and to share the good news. So, uh, so be sure to be a, a part of that and, uh, and don't, don't, let, don't miss out on those times of uh, investing what God's doing and in taking part in reaching the lives of people who need to know the Lord. Um, we're continuing on in, in our First Corinthians series and uh, there was... A wealthy person at one time, a wealthy man, and he, he got a hold of a building contractor and told him he wanted to enlist his services for building his home. And this wasn't going to be any ordinary home, okay? This, this guy is telling the, the contractor, look, I've got all the plans, and he kind of unrolls the blueprints for him, and, and the contractor's looking at these, and he's just stunned in amazement, because it's not just a house. It's not even just a mansion. This thing is a palace, and what he could tell by talking uh, to this, this uh, wealthy man is that no expense is going to be spared. If, if we need it, we're going to buy it. We're going to get it. And so the rich man began to describe the construction plans. He'd already laid a foundation. Uh, this foundation was deeper and stronger than anything the contractor would have thought of possible or even uh, being necessary. And, uh, and the great stones that were quarried, they fit tightly together deep below the ground so that there'd be no settling, no seepage, uh, nothing would undermine or shake this massive palace. And the materials provided for the construction were exquisite. They were beautiful. They were precious stones and gold and silver. And they were going to be featured throughout this great building. And so the contractor takes the job. And then he starts thinking. He starts observing things. He's going, you know what? Those beautiful gold bricks, they're probably going to crumble under the weight of the building. And, and, and those gemstones, man, they're going to be impossible to work with. And, and the, the, the mantle there and, and the, the tapestries covered with silver, that, that's going to tarnish someday. And, and by the way, those windows over there, they're not going to bring in enough light. And then he starts thinking even further. He's going, you know what? I'm the professional. I'm the contractor. I know better. I'm going to complete this work my way. It's going to turn out better. And you know what? This wealthy owner, he's going to be forced to admit that I'm the skilled one and I know how to construct a house. How long do you think that contractor lasted? Yeah, not long. 
Why? Because it's not his building. But you know what? As absurd as the situation might seem, it happens all the time in the household of God. Did you know that if you're a believer, you are called to be a part of God's building project? You know, a, a letter came out last week in terms of our own church family. We we're prayerfully considering a building project, and that letter described you know, different ways we can be praying towards what we're going to do in the future about that. But we find here that the reality is, is all of us are already called to be involved in God's building project, and this building project has been going on for well over two millennia. But here's the question. Are we following his plans? Are we building his project, his way, with his building materials? Paul's going to address that in the passage we'll explore this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 23. Go ahead and open to there if you would, or click to there, or whatever you do, swipe to there. Um, this is the word of God, and in light of that, let's stand together and go ahead and follow along as I read. First Corinthians chapter 3, beginning with verse 10. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved. It is though through fire. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would open up this passage to us, help us to see it, cause us to understand it, grace us to grow. And uh, may we build your work, your building, in your way, using your materials and your plans for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. As we explore this passage, we're going to uncover instructions for God's building project. And the first set of instructions, really to, to the builder, and the instruction is simply this, build wisely. How do you do that? Well, Paul tells us in verse 10, the first thing we find is this, watch your method. Notice what he says, I laid a foundation like a wise master builder. There it is. Um, so Paul's picking up this image of the church as a building, and he's developing the point that he actually introduced in passing earlier. Uh, thankful for Eric and him covering the previous week's passage. But you'll notice in verse 8, now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each one will receive his own reward. He's talking about himself and Apollos. Uh, be rewarded according to their own labor, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. There's the analogy. So he's talking to the Corinthian church, and he's saying, hey, you know what you are? You're God's building. That's you. And now he's going on to, to describe what it means to be 
one in ministry, a, a Christian leader, a Christian ministry leader building that church. And Paul speaks of himself as a master builder. Uh, really, the word is wise, a wise builder. And so this is a, someone who's overseeing the work. You might, you might again think of it as a contractor who's looking at this project saying, I'm the one overseeing the work that's being built here. But notice he says, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Another's coming to build on it. That'd be Apollos. He's already referred to him. But notice each man, whoever is coming to build, because there will be multiple teachers at different times, multiple leaders at different times. Notice they must be careful how they build. Uh, the word for careful there is the idea of looking at something. So you don't just sort of build because you want to build. I'm going to just kind of put up a structure here any way I want to. No. There's a need to be careful. And we go, well, why is that? Well, Paul would say, number one, the first reason to be very careful is there is only one foundation, and it's Jesus Christ. There is no, you don't need to lay a foundation, not your job. It's been done. The foundation is Christ himself. And again, you kind of think back to that analogy we started. Could you, you know, you've got this massive foundation that's there and you've been called in to build upon that foundation. And could you imagine the contractor going, you know what, I, I don't like that. I'm going to go over here and build my own foundation. I think I could do a better job. I think this location's better. I like the light here a little more. And so Paul is describing this how you build, his manner of building, God's building project. And, and, and this picture is that of the strong foundation who is Christ himself and nothing else. Notice how he begins the phrase in verse 10. He's doing all this according to the grace of God. Huh. In other words, God's unmerited favor compelled Paul's building efforts. God's unmerited favor colored and contoured everything Paul did in laying that foundation. And then Paul emphasizes that by saying the grace that was given to him. Paul emphasizes that this wasn't something he earned. It wasn't something that he received because of some sort of uh, effort that he made that was considered merit worthy. No, instead it was something he gained from God by grace as a gift. And so there's never any room for boasting, which he's been talking about quite a lot in this section. Um, you'll notice he's not saying, I'm the master builder because I'm the master builder. You know, that's not it. He's saying, grace has been given to me, unmerited. And because of that, by God's grace, I'm founding everything that I do in building his church on Christ alone. You know, that might seem obvious. But let's just consider our time today and ask the question, are there other foundations that are tempting for church leaders today? Oh, you bet there are. Tons of them. Uh, there's the foundation of pragmatism and expediency. There's ways that you can put things out there to build a crowd. If you want backsides and seats in a room, and if you want to think of that as being the church, you can do that. And there's plenty of ways to strategize to make that happen. And that's tempting. Why? Well, because pastors are always under that kind of pressure, right? Uh, you go to a pastor's conference or you talk with someone else who's in ministry, eventually it comes down to, so, 
What's your church like? You know what they mean by that? How big is your church? That's really what that means. That's code speak for how big is it? How many human beings gather in the room? And there becomes sort of this, like, it's, not, it's never stated, right? But it's always kind of like this under the, yeah. Because you, know, you know by how many people are in the building, that equals how, quote unquote, successful you are. Now, by the way, folks, am I saying that's right? Because the smaller you are, the more godly you are. No, no. Healthy churches grow. But healthy churches grow for the right reasons, in the right way, based on the right foundation. What are other foundations that are tempting today? I don't know. How about this one? Being nice. Don't offend them. They won't come back. There was a time many, many, many years ago, um, I was in, in the candidating process before we came here to Clayton Valley Church almost 14 years ago now. That's wild. That went by fast. I don't, it went by fast for me. You're probably like, oh, no, man, it took a long time. Anyway, yeah. For me, it's been fast. Okay, whatever. But, but here we were. We were in between... And I remember going uh, to a, a church along the central coast, and we were just talking about, you know, the possibility of coming there. And uh, the one there conducting the, the search, um, he just, he looked and he said, look, our goal here, our goal here is not that someone walks in and hears the gospel. Our goal is that they come back next Sunday. That was a very depressing ride home. I remember that. Jen and I were driving on the highway. We were just quiet in the car because we were so saddened that that would be the perspective that anyone who's trying to build God's church would have. It's prevalent. What's another foundation that's tempting in our time? How about this? A celebrity pastor. You know, you get the right person. They've got all the personality, the charisma, everything else. All the messages are based on their life rather than the text. Uh, The people that come, it's strictly for that. Now, again, is it virtuous to have someone in the pulpit who has no ability to communicate? No, of course not. That's not what we're saying. But again, what is the focus of the message What's it about? What's the foundation? What's it based upon? Is it the person and work of Jesus Christ? Or is it more about the person standing here with a little Jesus sprinkled in? There's a big difference. Oftentimes, another fake foundation that people will try to build things on these days is this idea of being relevant for the sake of relevance. So let me qualify this again. Is it a virtue to be completely irrelevant? No. But sometimes there is a tendency to try to pull into this place of being more relevant than real. As in really about God's work, God's purposes, and the way God himself has orchestrated salvation for sinners. And you know what that way is? The foolishness of the cross. And you can't get rid of the foolishness. 
Because the foolishness of the cross is the wisdom of God. And by it, God makes all the wisdom that surrounds us in our culture and world, he unveils it for what it really is. Foolishness. So this is certainly a warning to churches and specifically a warning to church leaders. What are you building on? There's only one foundation. You do not have any other option. You are not being called to innovate. You're being called to be faithful and build on the foundation that's been given. Secondly, if you're going to be wise as a builder, you've got to use only quality materials. And this is interesting. So there's, there's only one foundation, but there's a variety of things you can use to put on that foundation. Notice verse 12, he says, any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones. Those, those are high quality. And then and wood, that's a little bit less so. And then still others are downright flimsy, you know, hay and straw. And, and a question comes up, well, what, what are these building materials? What's the nature of them? What, what, what's Paul talking about here? And, and there have been several views of, of this over the centuries. I won't go through all of them, but... Um, the reality is you've got a picture of wood, hay, straw. You've got a picture of silver, precious stones, and gold. You've got this, verse 13, talking about the work becoming evident. Why? Because the day will show. The day. And what's the day? Well, it's the day that's revealed with fire, and the fire is going to test the quality of the work. And so uh, one idea in this passage would be what the, what the Roman Catholic Church has taught for, for, for many centuries, which is, that supposedly this demonstrates their doctrine of purgatory. And, and the idea is that if someone dies without sins being fully absolved, uh, what happens is, and by the way, to be absolved, you have to go to the sacrament of confession and then you have to do penance. That's how your sins are absolved. So unless you go to confession and do penance, um, you're going to go to purgatory when you die. And so the picture here would be something along these lines. The builders are Christians, the precious metals are good works, and the worthless materials are our sin. And then the day of fire is purgatory. And so you'll go through that, and then you'll be saved eventually, but you, you burn that off through, through that means. And there are tons of problems with this view. Uh, one would be that the context clearly shows that, that the builders here are not all Christians. He's specifically talking about church leaders. Right? He's been talking about Apollos. He's been talking about Paul. He's talking about being a wise builder. And so all of this is about leaders. Remember, there's all the preference. I, I'm following this one. I'm following Cephas. I'm, I'm following this. So he's describing that and addressing that as the issue. Secondly, the day is obviously, when he, says, when he says the day, without any explanation around it, you know what the original hearers heard right away? Day of the Lord. Why? Because the day of the Lord has been present throughout the Old Testament. The day is the day of the Lord, the day God returns to judge. It's a future day of judgment. It's not happening in an ongoing way every day as people leave this planet in death. That's not the picture. That's not what the day is. Another problem with that view is that the thoughts of sins being absolved or forgiven by acts of penance is completely foreign to the New Testament and frankly is an affront to Christ's finished work on the cross. Jesus says, it is finished. 
Paul writes, we are saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves. It's a gift from God. That's how salvation works. Notice Paul does not say we're saved by grace through faith with a little penance. And so it's ironic in many ways because the teaching of purgatory from this passage is actually utilizing a passage that highlights the word of the cross while undermining and devaluing Christ's work on the cross. So that's not the view that we would hold to because it's not what the passage is teaching. But if that's the case, then what, what is this picture about? What is he saying exactly? And well, again, let's look at the context. He's talking about Christian leaders. So the builders are certainly Christian leaders and teachers in the, in the midst of this controversy. And, and Paul's saying, I laid a foundation. Another comes along, Apollos, and builds it. Uh, if the foundation then, of course, is Christ himself. Why? Because the passage definitely tells us that. It's Christ alone. So what would the gold, silver, and precious stone be? I think if we work through the context and look at the argument Paul's been building since chapter 1, verse 18, the word of the cross is what this is all about. And so those precious gems and gold and silver, it would be the word of the cross. And the worthless things, the wood, hay, stubble, that would be the wisdom of the world. He's contrasting those two things. And he's saying, when you use the word of the cross, you get true converts. And when you use the wisdom of men, you get people who are not genuine believers. And that's why he, Paul would even say, you know, in verse 9, he's saying, you are God's building. He's talking about the Corinthian church. You are the building. And that will be described further later. So when you neglect the word of the cross, its offensiveness and its foolishness and really even its scandal, in, in essence, you end up building a counterfeit church. It tries to look like the church. It acts like the church, but it's not. And this is a a warning to leaders. The warning is be ever so careful how you build. Remember Paul's compelling reason to preach the foolishness of the cross. Why was that? So that your faith wouldn't rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And so that's what he's talking about. Precious stones, gold, silver, the word of the cross, worthless things that will burn up the, 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 the wisdom of men. One leads to genuine converts in building up Christ's body. The other leads to a false pseudo-belief and false pseudo-Christians. And the day is the day of the Lord, often depicted throughout the Bible as a day of judgment and fire. You can see why James would write in chapter 3 of James, verse 1, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Sobering. What are you using? The word of the cross or the wisdom of men? And what kind of people are becoming a part of this thing you're building called the church? Genuine believers or pseudo-Christians? And in doing so, are you building a real church or a counterfeit one? So what does that mean for us in terms of application? Well, first of all, we should be asking, what kind of church am I a part of? 
What kind of materials are being used to build this church? And you know what we, we find? And I've heard someone say this, and I think it's true. Depending on the building materials you're using, it attracts certain kinds of people. Uh, one person said it this way, the kind of bait you use determines the kind of fish you catch. And it's true. If it's the word of the cross, that attracts those who the Holy Spirit is invading and transforming and giving an appetite for spiritual, true, real things. And if you're here today and you've never come to Christ, the invitation is there for you to embrace this foolishness of the cross, that your sins can be taken and separated from you as far as the east is from the west. Not because God isn't going to judge sin. No, he is. But because he himself came and bore the punishment in your place. His righteous wrath is coming. This day of the Lord is coming. But if you turn to Christ and trust in him and by his grace receive forgiveness as he's paid the price in full for you, you'll be saved. On the other hand, it could be that we would stand here and say to you, whatever we think will get you in the building the following week. But we're not going to do that. We love you. Because God first loved us. And we love people enough to tell them the truth. We love people enough to let them be mad at us. We love people enough to let them call us fools. Fools for Christ's sake. You know, I, sometimes people ask me this, you know, why don't, why don't we just try to be more entertaining to people? You know, we know the Americans want entertainment. We've said, remember a few weeks ago, it was, you know, Jews want signs, Greeks want, want wisdom, Americans want entertainment. Why, why don't we do that more? Uh, the reality is this, entertainment is not the power of God. The gospel is. And when we embrace that kind of thing, it's, it's as one writer put it, we actually become disciple fakers instead of disciple makers. So may the faith of those who gather here at Clayton Valley Church never be based on any of those false foundations that we've described. Let it only be based on the foundation of Christ alone. And let nothing else be declared in here amongst us together as we gather before God's word in, in, in worship, as we talk amongst one another in fellowship, as we go throughout the week sharing with those that God's placed in our lives. May it be never anything else except the foolishness of the cross. So to the builder, watch your method. There's only one foundation. Use only quality building materials. And thirdly, as we've touched on, prepare for the Lord's evaluation. Uh, the point of using quality building materials is that they're going to be tested by fire on the day of the Lord. 
and quality materials will, will stand up to that test. In other words, there's a building inspector coming, and he doesn't just walk around with a clipboard. He judges with fire. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's vital that fire-resistant, high-quality materials are used as the church is built because that fire test is coming. So together, as a church family, we need to ask questions. Are we building our church with this coming building inspection from the Lord himself on our minds? Is that front and center for us as we go about the business that we're doing? Wherever it is that we're serving, however we're laboring, whatever it is that we're uh, giving ourselves to in terms of building up God's work here in this local church community to impact the community around us with the gospel, do we understand that the way we build is important to God? Notice, Paul's talking about how he builds. And our methodology, the way we approach those things, must be dependent upon the foundation, Christ alone. Well, God doesn't just give instruction to the builder and call them to build wisely. He also gives instruction to the church itself, the church as a whole. And so, in doing so, he essentially says to the building, live aware of several things. First, live aware of your purpose. You're a temple of God. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that's what you are. Paul uses this phrase, do you not know? Uh, Several things are going on here. First of all, this is the first time he uses that phrase. He's going to use it a lot more. (laughs) You know why he's using it? Because the Corinthians are proud of what? What they know. Matter of fact, he's going to quote them later in the book regarding knowledge. They love talking about knowledge. They were all about knowledge. They knew they had knowledge. They took pride in their knowledge. And here Paul says, do you not know? It's kind of like when Jesus is addressing the Pharisees. You ever notice that? The Pharisees, those who had memorized larger portions of the Scripture than you and I will probably ever get close to, were experts in the law, gave their lives to studying the law. And what does Jesus say to them? Have you not read? (laughs) You got to love that. Why? Because the Lord is lovingly provoking them. Maybe you've missed something. Why? Because Jesus is saying, I'm the author of the book. I wrote this. And the author has something to point out to you. But here, Paul similarly is going, do you not know? And then he brings some earth-shattering, beautiful truths home. We now find out that this building isn't just any building. It's a temple. Now, what's interesting is where else in Scripture do we find a foundation building of a building that's overlaid with gold and silver that's built upon with materials of precious stones. Where do we find that? Only one place, and that'd be Solomon's temple. That's where we find that. Solomon's temple, you can look at 1 Kings 5, verse 17, chapter 6, verses 20 to 21, verse 28, verse 30, verse 35. 
Uh, all through there, we find Solomon's temple is described in this way. And so Paul's description here shows that the model for this temple that the church is, is none other than Solomon's temple. Beautiful. Put together for one purpose. That all who would enter could worship the holy, holy, holy God. On the basis of what? On the basis of his mercy. His mercy demonstrated by sacrifice. By the sacrifice of a lamb. We look at the the rich heritage involved in that temple and the beauty of it, its purpose. And we realize all of it points to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But what is he saying here? He's saying, hey, live aware of your purpose. Your purpose is to be a temple of God. And then he goes on and gives a warning Notice in in, in verse 17, if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. Uh, The the way the syntax works in this particular sentence is fascinating because the word destroy is in the middle. You notice it happens twice in this sentence. It's in the very middle, so it's emphatic. Literally, it reads this way. If any man the temple of God destroys, destroy, God will him. Destroy, destroy. It could not be a more clear and terrifying warning. What's God saying? If you go about your life and your path and you attempt to destroy or harm a local church, God is saying you're toast. That's the abbreviated version. If you work and labor and act in such a way as to bring divisiveness to a local church, to bring harm to a local church, God is going to deal with you. Why? Because God's church is his temple. God's church is the place where his Holy Spirit dwells. In the same way the temple of old, God dwelt in the holy of holies, so God also corporately dwells within the local church. Now, by the way, all those yous here are plural. They're all corporate. God's going to talk later, and Paul will write later about individual believers and and bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit. But that's not what his emphasis is here. Everything here in verses 16 and following, that's all corporate. He's saying the church as a whole together is indwelt by the Holy Spirit and is God's temple. To destroy is the idea of ruining something, is the idea of, it can be a, a perversity, it can be a moral decay, um, it, it can be the idea of corruption. But realize that. And, and he's saying this very clearly. Hey, church, You, the building, live aware of the fact that your purpose is being God's temple here, now. And don't you dare do anything to destroy this. 
And if so, you are putting yourself in, arena, in, in an arena whereby you are opposing God himself. It's sobering. Especially now, how do people do that? Well, you look at the context of the book. Divisiveness, complaining, um, pitting one leader against another, arrogance, pride, it's all in there. We don't have to speculate about that. So church, you the building, live aware of not only your purpose, but also live aware of something else. Your danger. And your danger is self-deception. Look at verses 18 and following. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. Uh, you look at that phrase and you realize, wait a minute, there's a danger here. The danger is that I can be self-deceived. Self-deceived specifically by what? By the wisdom again of the world. And he's been talking about this this whole time. Again, since chapter 1, verse 18. He's spent a lot of time taking us through this. But the truth is, the culture around us, the world around us has a certain kind of wisdom. And we can deceive ourselves very, very easily. Um, he, he, he quotes the book of Job, chapter 5, verse 13. Eliphaz is, is spouting along, and frankly, Eliphaz is not exactly on the mark when he's giving Job advice. Just, when you read Job, just be careful, because the friends, they're at their best when they're quiet mourning with Job, suffering. When they open their mouths, not, not always great, but here, certainly the element of what Eliphaz says that is true is about what God does. God does, in fact, catch the wise in their craftiness. Um, he, he, he does, in fact, nullify the reasonings of the wise. And, that, and that's a quote from Psalm 94. And so we're self-deceived if we strive to be wise in this age. We're, we're self-deceived if we take pride in somehow our adherence to some human teacher. Again, Paul is still also dealing with that issue. Um, you know, it's very, very possible that they were saying, yeah, I'm of Apollos. You know, I'm, I'm of Peter. And so because of that, that makes me more wise than you. Why? Oh, because you're of Paul. Oh, eh, you know. Scale of 1 to 10, you know, he's a 4 or 5 sometimes. But I follow Cephas. Why? Because Cephas has got his act together, man. That guy knows the law. No, Cephas is okay. But Apollos, that guy's so eloquent. He just sounds amazing. If you really want to get into knowing it, you've got you you to hear Paul's. And of course, we easily today, with technology, blogs, Twitter accounts, uh, YouTube, whatever it would be, you can slip in your favorite name. You know, we talked about that before. I, I'm of Piper. I'm of Keller. You know? I, I'm... I'm of, of none of them, you know, because I'm, I, I'm of myself. I just know. Whatever it would be. The point is the arrogance that comes with that and the divisiveness of the arrogance. Can you see that? 
So how are we easily self-deceived? It comes out in all kinds of ways. Again, embracing cultural wisdom, uh, boasting in, in a human leader of some kind. Here's a question to ask. What happens when this human leader, and we would never pray for this, we would never desire it, we, we pray uh, that every leader um, that has a platform that's based upon the gospel would stand. And yet, sadly, if that leader does somehow either turn away from their ministry or fall, what happens to your faith? What happens to the people that you're reading or listening to can affect your life and your walk. But if that leader is your emphasis and your focus, sadly, when their trajectory falters, oftentimes your faith goes right along with it. And maybe a good question to ask would be this. When the leader is talking, how much of the leader or personality how often are they pointing to them, themselves, their own thing, their way? And does their preaching and teaching cause you to hold on to the things of this world? Or does their preaching and teaching give you more confidence in Christ? We've got to ask these questions. Does the person cause my eyes to be fixed on the word of the cross more and more and more? So as the church, we must live aware not only of our purpose, we're a temple, not only of our danger, self-deception, but lastly also of our position. And what's our position? All things are yours. Look at what he says in verse 21 and following. So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. I got to admit, studying this week, I read that last phrase, and Christ belongs to God, and I go, what are you talking about? <laughs> Christ belongs to God? What does that mean? Is it as his son, maybe? Is it, is it specifically as the son who voluntarily submits to the father? Okay, yeah. Well, let's look at some key considerations here. The context. This is a final explanation of why no one should boast in men. Again, look at verse 21. Here's the declaration. Let no one boast in men. And then he begins the next part of the phrase with the word for. What's the for doing? It's explaining. So don't boast in men because all things belong to you. Okay. All things belong to you. What, why? Why is he going there with this idea of belonging? Well, let's remember something. What were they saying? If you go back to earlier in this passage, and even past what we've talked about this week, so earlier in the chapter, they're saying things like this, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. And the way their language works, they're really saying, I belong to their school of thinking. You could read it, I belong to Paul. I'm of Paul. And so what does Paul do? He takes that and he reverses that. He says, no, you don't belong to Paul or Apollos or Cephas. In fact, you know what? All things belong to you in Christ. 
He turns it and just flips it upside down, takes their words and flips it. So what does that mean? Well, he goes on in verse 22. He lists out Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, the various teachers in Christ. You're not of them. No, they're yours. The world itself. Why? It's yours. Why? Because it's Christ. You know, as one writer put it, uh, God's flagpole was placed into the earth by the cross. The cross is God's moment of, bam, this world is mine. I'm taking it back. I've paid the price. And then he goes on. Look at verse 22. He lists out these other things. Life, death, things present, things to come. All these things were filled with threats and fears and would press down on the heart of people with anxiety because of the tyranny of these different things in life. And what's he saying? Now in Christ, all those things are yours as well. You don't need to fear life or death. They're yours in Christ. The present and future, they no longer assail you with dark forebodings of uncertainty. They once brought you dread, but now in Christ, instead of bringing you dread, they are your birthright. There's no need to panic in the face of the future. In Christ, the future is already yours. And Paul's going on to say, you belong to Christ. You are of Christ. And then the great crescendo, Christ is of God. All authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. So if you are of Christ and Christ is of God, how can any believer say, I'm of Paul or Apollos? How trite, how narrow, how confused, how meaningless. What's it going to take for us today to lay aside our preferences over personalities and the pride that comes from it. In this day of social media and all the other things that run around in the digital ether sphere, what will it take for us to lay it aside? Not simply because living that way and thinking that way and impacting other people that way is, is wrong and immature, which, by the way, it is both. But more so because in Christ, we have so much more. We have all things. Instead, often our, our hope compresses down to rest on a gifted human teacher and then arrogant, and arrogance and division arise and then God's people are quarreling over preference and personality. And sadly, that most often leads to uncoupling from sometimes the gospel itself. And this leads to deeper spiritual devastation and sometimes even a shipwrecked faith, if not recovered. How much better to be thankful for just such gifted teachers, to learn from those who actually teach the truth of the cross, but also to proclaim, I don't belong to them. Why? Because all things are mine. I'm in Christ, and Christ is God's, and I'm in him. This is our hope. This is our joy. This is our confidence today and each day that God gives us until we see him face to face. And in the meantime, 
We need to grow and learn to rest our attention on the things that are important to him, not the cultural whims of our time, not what's, fat, what's fashionable uh, in, 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 in cyberspace or in, in, in the world around us. Let's use his building materials to build his building project in his way. On one foundation, Jesus Christ. And as we do so, may he be glorified. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would grace us to understand and to see the beauty of your building project, the plans you have, the foundation in Christ alone, the materials that you've given us to work with, the beauty of the message of the foolishness of the cross. And rather than being of anyone, may we realize that all things belong to us in Christ. All is yours. So we praise you for this. We thank you for this time to be together in your word. Amen.